Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Elizabeth Herbin Tryant about her book, Threatening Property, Race, Class, and Campaigns to Legislate Jim Crow Neighborhoods, published by Columbia University Press in 2019. Dr. Herbin Tryant is an assistant professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Threatening Property examines the campaigns for residential segregation in early 20th century North Carolina. Looking at the intersection of both race and class, Dr. Herbin Tryant explores how white supremacy was divided along class lines, pitting elite whites against their poorer counterparts as Jim Crow America increasingly held back black Americans. Dr. Herbin Tryant, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I guess to kick things off, can you tell our listeners uh, how you became interested in this topic? Sure. I think in part because of family history, I've long been interested in the issues that the book addresses. Um, When I was a kid, my father, who's African-American and grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina, told me a lot of stories about living through Jim Crow. I was really intrigued by the system, which was quite different from what I'd experienced growing up in the North. I really wanted to understand what the point of segregation was, as well as who wanted segregation and why they wanted segregation. Doing research on my dissertation, I came upon Clarence Poe, the editor of the agricultural journal, The Progressive Farmer. Poe was an advocate for small white farmers and a reformer who wished to make agriculture more efficient and modern. He was behind a movement to create the rural South after the whole of South Africa, which in 1913 had passed the Natives Land Act, prohibiting blacks from owning land off of the areas set aside for them and reserves. Among other things, he pushed for an amendment to the North Carolina state constitution that would allow the members of a community to vote to restrict land sales. I was really intrigued by the fact that Poe was someone who was considered a reformer, a modernizer, yet the solution he came up with to the problems of small white farmers who were, um, by the way, leaving the countryside for the city was segregation. I was interested in the intellectual justification for a policy like the one Poe proposed and was also interested in what economic benefits white gained from segregation policies. Then after researching Poe for a while, I realized that something similar was taking place in some of North Carolina's cities, including Winston-Salem and Greensboro. Uh, that some whites were pushing for segregation ordinances to prevent black people from buying property and for living in majority white neighborhoods. I began to see connections between opposed segregationist movement and the one taking place in the city and came to see this as a broader movement meant to benefit middling whites. And so when, you know, you just mentioned um, the kind of divides that are going on and you mentioned middling uh, white people. And for our listeners who, you know, for myself included, you know, I'm used to seeing the term middling and say early America before we kind of have like 
hard set class lines and everything like that. You know, a lot of people are referred to as middling folk um, and you use this uh, phrase, you know, middling. And so what does it mean to be middling during this time period? And is there a difference between that and say middle class? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, but I, I want to emphasize sort of the precariousness of middle class people. That's why I use the term middling. But maybe I'll start by talking about elite, just to draw the distinction. Um, so elites were people who held political and economic power during the period that I'm examining, and they built a world for themselves that relied on black labor hiring African-Americans on their farms and in their factories, and Black workers prepared their food, cleaned their homes, and drove them around. These people, at least, weren't concerned about Blacks trying to move into their neighborhoods as equals as Blacks couldn't afford to move into their neighborhoods. So, for example, Winston-Salem's elite lived in the western part of the city in an area that was separate from the factories around which middling and poor white African-Americans lived. Elites worked as lawyers, bank owners, and factory owners. So the term middling, as I mentioned, it's supposed to emphasize that the people behind residential segregation laws weren't always solidly in the middle class. Um, they're very concerned about slipping into a lower status, and they responded to Black folks trying to move into their neighborhoods with great anxiety. So these are people who worked as grocers and salesmen, tradesmen, uh, as foremen and tobacco, and tobacco companies. In Winston-Salem, they lived in the eastern part of the city near the tobacco factories, as did African-Americans, and they didn't always own their own homes. Um, some historians have focused on segregation as symbolic, as a way for whites to assert their superior status over blacks. For middling whites, segregation was more than this. It was also a way of maintaining economic opportunity, of keeping resources for themselves. For example, the segregation of public accommodations allowed them to keep taxpayer-funded resources like, uh, quote-unquote, public libraries for their sole use. Um, so middling whites who pulled themselves out of the class of renters to own their own property considered residential segregation laws important for removing competition over white neighborhoods. And it's important to note that as blacks saved up money, some were able to pay more for property than white buyers could. Um, middling whites who pushed for segregation laws complained of an invasion of African-Americans into their neighborhoods, invasion of their farms. So in reality, the invasion was just uh, one or two black families moving in. They complained that these black families would damage their property. Property values would often decline as African-Americans moved into white neighborhoods because white owners would um, dump the properties on the market at low prices and flee. Uh, one black newspaper refers to this as a societal action. So residential segregation laws were thus a way of helping them to maintain their property values. One of the arguments that I make in the book is that white supremacy didn't mean the same thing to different groups of white Southerners. For elites, white supremacy was about exploiting the labor of African Americans, and for this, they needed to keep their black work at hand. Residential segregation didn't make sense for elites. For middling whites, white supremacy was about helping them to compete with blacks for opportunities and resources, and residential segregation laws were an important tool for this. 
And so, you know, as you were saying, you know, there's this divide between, you know, certain classes of white people between, you know, the middling people who are in this sort of precarious uh, economic situation where they may or may not, you know, slip down into a lower class. And then you have the elites. And so and you and you mentioned that your initial kind of uh, entry into this project was, you know, Poe and in terms of, you know, looking at one half of the study in terms of like the rural area, how did the rise of like black farmers feed into the animosity of people like Poe and kind of drive them towards wanting to segregate rural uh, North Carolina? Well, I'm not going to claim that all African-Americans in North Carolina were enjoying economic success by 1915 but enough were that was noticeable. And a number of historians like Evan Bennett, Adrian Petty, have explained the successes of these farmers, looking at the strategies that enabled black farmers to buy property at higher rates than white. Some made money growing brightly tobacco, for example, and then they'd put that money into purchasing farmland. So blacks were, um, were buying land in the countryside. They're also buying property in cities like Winston-Salem, and doing so at higher rates than white buyers. The property that they acquired was usually not the most desirable property, but the property did give them a foothold into a better life as small owners um, rather than as sharecroppers. The black people who bought property in Winston-Salem were sometimes entrepreneurs, like a man named Earl H. Jones, who bought properties and rented them out to other African-Americans. But there were also sometimes workers in tobacco factories who take up money to move out of the type of unattractive housing stock that you can see on the cover of my book, which is in East Winston. Um, so whites in both the countryside and in North Carolina City saw this trend of African Americans acquiring property, and they feared that black economic success would limit the successes of whites. They saw economic success as a zero-sum game. And their residential segregation programs were a backlash against this uh, success class of Americans. I wanted to read a quotation from Clarence Poe about the economic successes of black farmers, which he commented on in many articles in The Progressive Farmer. And this quotation is from The Progressive Farmer. If anyone is inclined to question whether what we've said in this article can be officially substantiated, he has only to consult the official census figures for the decade 1900 to 1910. And in the South Atlantic states, the Carolinas, Virginia, Georgia, Florida, Maryland, and Delaware, Negro acreage increased 13%, while the white decreased 2%. As Booker, as Booker Washington says, the Negro now owns farmlands, quote, greater in area than the five states of Vermont, New York, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. This is largely due, one, to the Negro crowding out the small white farmer by lower standards of living, and two, to the fact that the white farmers in many sections have moved away because of the lack of adequate white society. So I wanted to point out that at the end of this quote, Poe criticizing successful black farmers. He views them as harming the prospect of middling white farmers by economizing. Um, he uses this term, um, they have lower standards of living. And he claims that their very presence drives white farmers into cities. I think that this attitude helps to explain people like Poe responded to black economic success with a program of residential segregation. 
And in terms of, you know, what's going on in North Carolina at this time that, you know, people like Poe and, you know, these sort of some some of these successful and, you know, increasingly um, sort of prosperous uh, black farmers and black uh, property owners are uh, in what sort of like political context do we have do we see in North Carolina at this time that is kind of giving rise to these residential segregation campaigns? Um, well, so I look at this period after Reconstruction and there are some black serving in political office in North Carolina. So th- there's this story of political success to go along with the story of economic success. Um, and there's in North Carolina this this fusion of um, Republican and populist, um, which has allowed the the populist party to kind of compete with the Democratic Party for, for political power. Um, so just to, to talk more about this context um, and how it's relevant to the book, the populist and Democratic parties has both been using what I call, borrowing a phrase, by the way, the scarecrow rate motivate white voters to support their own party. They both focused on the supposed dangers to white women allowing black men to vote and to hold political office. And each party claimed that only it could effectively protect white women. Populist and Democratic leadership riled up middling white voters who were primed to embrace white supremacist policy um, through the rhetoric that, um, uh, that, that they were hearing. Political leaders, many of whom were actually elite, supported the segregation of public accommodations, and then many middling whites viewed residential segregation as the logical next step, and I think many were puzzled about why police wouldn't follow them into that next step. I put the movement for residential segregation in the state in the context of the white supremacist campaign of 1898, when Democrats took political power from populists through fraud and violence. Uh, the coup in Wilmington is the best-known example of this. They also disfranchised black voters, adopting an amendment to the state constitution. So the period preceding the residential segregation campaign was one of vicious political rhetoric, of heightened animosity, and of violence directed toward blacks, as well as of political oppression. And perhaps it's not so surprising that a campaign to limit the economic opportunities of blacks would emerge at this time. And in terms of, you know, this campaign that's going on to do this, one of the most interesting aspects of your book, in my opinion, is the way that you situate it within the larger kind of international movement um, that you kind of briefly hinted at earlier when it comes to, say, South South Africa. And for me, when, you know, talking about Jim Crow America, uh, I think a lot of people don't realize how much. Uh, uh, white Americans who are trying to strengthen Jim Crow and expand it and everything are taking inspiration from other countries. And you really do a great job of integrating that into this story. And so what is how is the residential segregation campaign that you study kind of a part of this international movement? And then you also point out that it's also a little bit distinct from an indifference. So what what's going on there? Sure. Um- so as you know, I fit on North Carolina, which was actually unusual in having a residential segregation movement in both rural and urban areas. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I, that I picked that state. But other southern states 
we're also passing residential segregation ordinances in cities, with Baltimore being the first to do so, um, and followed by cities like Atlanta, Richmond, St. Louis, and Louisville. Um, what was going on in the South was part of a broader effort taking place in the early 20th century around the globe in places where white people were trying to maintain ascendancy. So what Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds call an assertion of whiteness. This was about setting non-white people apart, labeling them inferior, avoiding their labor, and preventing them from gaining political rights. It was about shoring up white supremacy at a time when it was being challenged. Um, so to, to talk about South Africa, Poe um, met white South African Maurice Evans in 1912, actually on his honeymoon on a ship, and was inspired by what he learned from Evans to pursue segregationist policies in the South. Evans was the architect of the Natives Land Act, which became the cornerstone of the apartheid developer. Evans traveled through the U.S. South, and he wrote a book describing the racial problems of the region. He argued that it was too late for the South to enact a policy like the Native Land Act, as there had been so much racial intermixing there. And he used it as an example to warn white South Africans of the importance of keeping the races separate. Um, Poe didn't agree with Evans that it was too late to separate races in the South. He thought that if the brethren in South Africa could pull the huge segregation um, program off, so too could whites in the U.S. South. So there's, you know, a conversation going on there between the two men. Um, um, so there's this transatlantic exchange of ideas going on and going on beyond the Poe and Evans, um, a conversation about how to shore up white supremacy. Um, but focusing back on North Carolina, um, I just want to point out that what's taking place in North Carolina was unique to the state. Um, North Carolina was a distinctive place a place where small white farmers had more of a voice than they did elsewhere um, through Post Journal, the progressive farmer, for example, and policies from other countries couldn't just be plugged in there. Um, and if you compare North Carolina to, to other southern states, particularly uh, in the deep south, there are more small white farmers and, and people um, yeah, have, have sort of more of a, a voice. And so going off of, you know, what's going on in North Carolina, one of the things that you talk about is how once neighborhoods start, quote unquote, turning black um, is when uh, white landowners kind of really start getting up in arms. And as you've kind of hinted at already and briefly spoken about, you know, this might be, you know, just one or two people. But what was the kind of general process in which neighborhoods started to, quote, turn black? And what did this mean for both black and white property owners? Well, generally, middle class African-Americans would buy property in lower middle class white neighborhoods. Um, and Blacks who did this were seeking neighborhoods where they could receive municipal services and where they could get away from the problems in Black neighborhoods, which were often in low-lying flood-prone areas and which could be vice-ridden as police allowed things like prostitution in Black neighborhoods, but often not in white neighborhoods. Um, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes Black buyers could pay more for property than whites could afford to. Um, and so They'd buy in, uh, once they'd established a foothold, their white neighbors would flee. And as they did, their property values then declined. 
Although sometimes they would then if you go up and there were more black buyers who could continue to pay high prices. Usually, though, um, once blacks had moved in and prices went down, then poor blacks would move into the neighborhood, sometimes doubling or tripling up in order to pay rent. And through this process, white neighborhoods would become what some people called black ghettos. So ordered by race rather than class in the sense that, um, you know, upper middle class uh, blacks would move in, but then, you know, then it would sort of quickly become, um, you know, a, a black area with blacks of all classes. And in terms of, you know, uh, thinking about what the black community is doing in the face of these kind of residential segregation campaigns. One of the points that you make when speaking about, say, Winston, North Carolina, is that the black community there um, is largely silent when it comes to, you know, their white counterparts trying to basically kick them out um, in this urban setting. And so why might black community members remain silent on this issue? Well, the most important black man in Winston, Winston-Salem, you know, this, so this was, this was happening just before Winston emerged with um, Salem becoming Winston-Salem. Um, so the most important man uh, was Simon D. Atkins, who was principal of the Slater Industrial Academy. Scholars have drawn parallels between Atkins and Booker C. Washington as both relied on the financial support of whites for the schools that they ran. The black community followed the lead of Atkins in keeping quiet about residential segregation laws. So there are at least two possible reasons that Atkins didn't publicly oppose residential segregation laws, um, or at least two that I examine in the book. Um, first, he didn't want his relationship with local white donors to be weakened because his school would have suffered as a result. You know, the black students that he um, was enrolling couldn't, you know, afford to sort of pay full tuition and keep the school financially afloat in that way. So white largesse was really necessary for the school. Um, second, Atkins had developed the middle, I'm sorry, yeah, the middle class black neighborhood of Columbia and Heights. Um, which offered upwardly mobile black and alternative white neighborhood. Um, he was hoping that in establishing this neighborhood near his school, he could give his black students something to aspire to, right? That they sort of see this attractive middle class neighborhood and then they want to, um, you know, get a certain type of job to be able to afford to, to live in this way. Um, so, uh, so anyway, he, he developed this neighborhood. Um, and, 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 you know, as I understand it, if blacks were kept out of middle class white neighborhoods, they might be more likely to move to Columbian Heights. So there's some financial interest you might have in keeping quiet about the residential segregation laws. Um, so for these reasons and possibly others, the black leadership in Winston kept quiet about the city's residential segregation ordinance. Um, but it was a black man who wasn't prominent, uh, a man named William Darnell, who stood up to Winston's ordinance. Darnell was a 47-year-old tobacco worker who had saved his money and purchased property in an attractive majority white neighborhood. Um, and Darnell disobeyed the ordinance. So he, um, he purchased this property, moved in. Um, he was found guilty in municipal court 
then appealed to the Superior Court and then to the State Supreme Court, which ruled in his favor in 1914, um, thus blocking residential segregation ordinances in the state. Um, and that court case is um, State v. Parnell. And in terms of what's going on between, you know, the urban environment and the rural environment, you know, as you've as you said, you know, in the urban environment, there's kind of this divide because more elite white people don't mind uh, black people being in their neighborhoods because they're often working for them. Um, and there's there's really not much of a much of a chance that, you know, their neighborhoods are going to get taken over because black people cannot afford it. But in the rural area, you know, there's there's differences. And so how does that segregation kind of uh, that segregation campaign, I should say, take off? And, you know, as I was just kind of hinting at, and as, as you've uh, talked about so far, how does it differ from the urban ones? So, you know, is it more successful or not? Right. Um, so just, I may not, I forget if I made this distinction, but um, but elites don't mind black in their neighborhoods as subordinates, right? And in fact, maybe it boosts their um, their esteem to have a lot of black workers, um, you know, working in their homes. Um, but they certainly would have minded black if they had been moving in equals. Um, but to, sort of to, to talk more about um, the question you're asking, Rural segregation was meant to make desirable farmland available only to whites, um, thus giving whites a boost as they work to acquire property. Um, it was also meant to make the countryside more appealing to whites who might be thinking about moving to cities. Poe believed that the reason that so many whites were moving to cities was that their communities had, quote-unquote, too many uh, black people in them and not, uh, too few whites to fill their churches and schools. Um, and meanwhile, whites in cities, um, middling whites, wanted um, to make desirable property available only to whites, too. And they um, also argued that blacks in their neighborhood uh, were damaging their property values as it led to white flight. Um, and then Poe's paying attention to what segregationists in cities were doing and then using this to support his own cause. And segregationists in cities were paying attention to rural segregation. Um, I argue that the urban and rural segregationist campaigns were thus part of a broader movement for residential segregation in the state, rather than being two entirely separate movements. And so, you know, we've talked about how the black community was responding to such residential uh, segregation campaigns in urban environments such as Winston, turn Winston Salem, North Carolina. But in rural uh, areas, how were black people responding there? What were they doing to either fight it or like their urban counterparts, might they have been not fighting it? Well, local black leaders did write articles condemning uh, rural segregation. And they viewed that it, that it limited opportunity for black um, and it lead to the loss of land that people have been working hard to acquire. Um, and Du Bois, who, uh, you know, obviously wasn't local, but was following Poe's campaign for rural segregation and reported on it in the crisis, um, declared it, quote, the most vital attack on the economic rights of the Negro ever put forward in the United States. As Du Bois understood it, blacks already lost political rights and had been promised in exchange for political rights that they would have economic opportunities. 
Um, that's Booker T. Washington's famous compromise. But here they were with their economic rights attack. Um, it wasn't the criticism of blacks that led to the failure of post campaign, though. Um, you know, it wasn't the voices of the, the local people or of Du Bois. Rather, um, white elites opposed rural segregation, arguing that it would make it difficult for them to get black farmers to work their land. Um, you know, they, they would put down um, in articles, uh, they'd put down uh, white farm workers saying that, you know, if it's raining, the white man won't work my farm, but the black man will, um, saying that, you know, if, if black workers are segregated, they'll go with the black workers. So they're very clear about the fact that they, you know, they insist on having these workers. Um, and without the support of the least closed constitutional amendments, they couldn't get the required number of votes in the state Senate. And so how do we see, you know, the kind of legal residential segregation that, you know, had some sort of success kind of come to an end? You know, you you point out that eventually, you know, the idea of legal uh, residential segregation is just it, it, it comes to an end in the United States. But you also point out that it shifts as is often the case when we talk about systems of oppression, you know, it, it might hit one, you know, speed bump, but it keeps on going. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned the 1914 North Carolina state Supreme Court case of state Jornel, which declared Winston-Salem segregation ordinance invalid. Um, and that case prevented other cities that were considering segregation ordinances like Charlotte from enacting them. The court's opinion in the case, which was written by Chief Justice Walter Clark, is really quite interesting. It rests on its decision on a technicality that the Winston City Charter didn't give the Board of Aldermen the authority to enact such a law. But it also points to the problem such a law for industrialists in the city, the most prominent of whom was R.J. Reynolds. Uh, he doesn't mention R.J. Reynolds by name, but that was sort of the key, the key figure in the city. Um, an, an industrialist like Reynolds needed to attract and retain black workers. And in fact, Reynolds would, you know, recruit black workers from, say, South Carolina. There weren't, you know, enough locally. Um, a law that would make it harder for these workers to access affordable and decent housing would make it harder for Winston-Salem to continue this tobacco manufacturing powerhouse. And Clark clearly was more interested in the needs of corporations like the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Company than he was in the desires of middling white to keep attractive housing for themselves. Then three years after State v. Darnell in 1917, the U.S. Supreme Court case Buchanan v. Worley declared residential segregation laws unconstitutional. Um, This case was about the right of a white man, Charles Buchanan, to dispose of his property. Buchanan's lawyers argued that Louisville um, segregation ordinance deprived Buchanan of his property as it prevented him from selling to the only people willing to buy on his mixed race block who were black. After Buchanan, white supremacists turned to other methods of bringing about residential segregation. They tried zoning ordinances, which tried to build segregation into zoning plans. Um, they tried restrictive covenants, which were private agreements wherein property owners agreed not to sell to non whites. Um, they turned to urban renewal down the road and constructing highways between black and white neighborhoods. 
the federal government, of course, helped bring about residential segregation through programs like the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which through redlining cut off opportunity for Blacks to gain access to loans and housing in white neighborhoods. As it turned out, there were other ways to bring about residential segregation, um, and segregationists were pretty successful in ordering neighborhoods by race. Um, my book explores a moment when middling whites took the lead in working for residential segregation laws, thinking that these laws could help their class. Though they weren't successful in legislating segregated neighborhoods, ultimately their vision did shape the landscape. If you look at Winston-Salem today, for example, you'll see it's highly segregated and economic opportunity lines up with segregation. A study by Raj Chetty shows the county that Winston-Salem is in to be one of the three worst in the nation for upward mobility. East Winston, one of the Black neighborhoods, um, has insufficient public transportation and access to jobs, and it's separated from the rest of the city by highways. So we may not have residential segregation laws in place, but we certainly do have residential segregation. I do want to note, though, that the failure of residential segregation laws um, prevented the U.S. from following a path like that of South Africa, a path of rigid and harsh residential segregation laws from which it would be even more difficult to recover um, than it than it is from um, you know, the segregation that we do have. And so, you know, as you just said, you know, this has a very kind of deep history and long lasting impact. And so we have, you know, this great book by you again, you know, it's Dr. Elizabeth Herbin Tryant. Her book is called Threatening Property, Race, Class and Campaigns to Legislate Jim Crow Neighborhoods. So we have this great book where, you know, we're learning about this. We're seeing the long term impacts that, you know, these sorts of campaigns had. What can we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on next? Well, I'm, I'm uh, continuing to be interested in issues regarding you know, segregation, racial capitalism, um, class uh, conflict. But I'm actually uh, turning to the, the city of Lowell, which is I'm working in. Um, you know, while working in Lowell, I found some really interesting material about the um, of the abolitionist and anti-abolitionist history of the city. Um, you have these textile mill owners who um, were actively working to support slavery. Um, so I want to kind of talk about um, cities like Lowell as um, as contributing to uh, slavery. I want to talk about mill owners um, and put them kind of in their rightful place in the story of, of slavery and in the story of, um, of capitalism. Um, and um, I'm also looking at uh, the abolitionists who work to undermine uh, that agenda. And many of these abolitionists were the female mill workers. Um, so, so they're quite brave in working against the agenda of their employer. Um, so that's a kind of quick summary, although I am um, also interested in picking up the topic of segregation again, too. Well, I'm sure when you have that book out eventually, we'll all have to pick that up as well. And we'll probably definitely bring you back onto the program to talk about that. But in the meantime, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you so much, Derek. I really appreciate it.